All right. Well, light is important, isn't it? Anybody who's woken up in the middle of the night and stubbed your toe on your bedpost can testify to that. Uh, a few years ago, well, more than a few years ago now, um, maybe 10 years ago or so, uh, back when Caitlin was working as a nurse, she was working night shift, and I was uh, preaching, uh, just filling in for a church who was in need of a pastor while they searched for a pastor. And uh, the church was about an hour away, so I had to get up early uh, to get ready, and Caitlin was getting in from work about 6 or 6.30 in the morning, and so uh, she was coming in exhausted, she was tired, and so I tried not to uh, turn on any lights. Our, the way our house was, our bathroom light was very close to the bed, or bedroom. And so uh, I tried to get ready that morning in the dark and felt like I did a pretty good job and uh, left to go preach. And as I was looking in the mirror in the restroom, I, right before I was about to go preach, I noticed something on my, my cheek. And so I went to uh, dust it off. And at that time, I was uh, less of a man. I was clean shaven. And uh, <laughs> I... I uh, had shaved that morning and apparently in the dark had missed about a quarter size patch right on my cheek. So um, I gave a new definition to my good side that day. And uh, this side over here heard a lot of the sermon because I didn't want to look that way and expose myself. But, uh, but I learned that morning something that we, we all know intuitively, right, which is that walking in light, right, is, is more effective, um, more efficient, or it's less difficult, right, than walking in the darkness. Stumbling around in the dark gave me a poor shave that was only revealed as it was exposed by the lights at the church that morning. So we need light in our physical experience, right? But what John's talking about in the verse you just heard is that we also need light in our spiritual formation, our spiritual experience. Just as it's important uh, to have light, to do things like walk and shave effectively, so too is it important to walk in the light as we're seeking to be spiritually formed uh, by the Lord Jesus. So over the next two weeks, we're, we're going to talk about this idea of spiritual formation, uh, spiritual formation is nice Christianese, right? It's two words that sound very good together. Uh, but I want to give you a definition so that we're all uh, collectively on the same page as we look together to know what it means to be spiritually formed. Uh, so Dallas Willard gives us this definition of spiritual formation. He says, spiritual formation in the Christian tradition is a process of increasingly, and I love these two words, being possessed and permeated by the character traits of Jesus as we walk in the easy yoke of discipleship with him as our teacher, being possessed and permeated with the character traits of Jesus. If you are a believer, if you are in Christ, that is your one desire, right? To be possessed and permeated, right? To, to overflow with Jesusness. That's what we hunger after. And spiritual formation is the way that we not only get there, but go there. Right? It's not only the destination, but it's the, it's the path, it's the way. And so this light and darkness imagery that John gives us uh, is one of his favorites, and he actually quotes Jesus in his gospel in John chapter 8 uh, as saying this, I am the light of the world. And Jesus connects this idea of light to following him. He says, anyone who follows me will never walk in the darkness, but will have the light of life. So walking with Jesus, following Jesus, 
We need light to, sh- to shine, right? To give us the way. In other words, we can't really follow Jesus accidentally. We don't stumble into following Jesus. We don't naturally gravitate toward being possessed and permeated by Jesus. Oftentimes we, we think we might, right? We hope we might. But the reality is, spiritual formation requires intentionality. It requires a direction. It requires a light for us to follow. But before we even get there, I, I do want to point out in this passage, one thing that we see in First John is that the truth is meant to be practiced. The truth is meant to be practiced. He says, did you hear him in verse 6, we are not practicing the truth. Have you ever thought about truth as something that you, you practice, that you do? Most of us think of truth as something we believe, right? Something we know. What does it mean to, to practice the truth, to do the truth? Now, this is partly what the Old Testament laws are for, right? To help Israel practice the truth. This is why, or at least part of the reason why you've got all those strange sounding laws to our ears about what they can eat, what they can wear. This is showing a, a way to be holy and distinct, right? A way to live inside the truth that they know about God. You can hear this in Deuteronomy chapter five. Be careful to do as the Lord your God has commanded you. You are not to turn aside to the right or to the left. Hear this, you must walk in the ways that the Lord your God has commanded you, so that you may live and prosper and prolong your days in the land you will possess. Walking in order to live and prosper, walking in the way of Jesus. This was the idea of the law. This is the idea of the spiritual practices that we're going to talk about over the next couple of weeks. So you hear there that God is light, is what John says. God is the light. Right? God is the illuminating thing in our lives that shows us the truth. In other words, he's holy. Right? He's perfect. But it's not just, as we said, truth. It's also God is light means he's righteous. It means he's both true and he is righteous. He is true and good. So here in Psalm, chapter one, or Psalm 119, verse 105, most of you know this verse, your word is a lamp to my feet, and a light to my path. You hear there the idea of God as truth, the idea of light as truth, something that guides us to the truth, to true knowledge of our Creator. That's what God's Word is. It's a light to guide us to truth. So light is truth in John. That's, what, that's one thing John means by walking in the light, is walking in the truth, knowing the truth. Well, you also hear in Ephesians chapter 5, Verse 9, the fruit of the light consists in all goodness, righteousness, and truth. Do you hear that? So truth is one of them, but Paul gives us two more things that walking in the light, that the fruit of the light is, their goodness and truth. In other words, not just things that we think, but things that we are, things that we do. Paul and John are both interested in connecting these things. Not just what we believe in our heads, but what we do with our hands, how we live our lives, how we're formed in the way of Jesus. That's what walking in the light means. In other words, just as we're meant not only to see the light, but to walk in it, we're not meant to only do the truth, 
I'm sorry, start over. It's very eloquent, you need to hear it. Just as we are not only meant to see the light but walk in it, so too we are not only meant to know the truth but to do it. All right, so seeing light is great, using the light to walk on the path is better, right? Knowing the truth is great, using the truth to walk in the way of Jesus is better. That's what John's trying to get us with this call to walk in the light. Don't just look at it. Don't just enjoy it. Begin to walk in it. So good doctrine, of course, is crucially important to our spiritual formation. We must know the truth before we can walk in it. And yet, we don't merely think our way into Christ's likeness, according to John. Most of you have heard the famous line from Descartes, right? I think, therefore I am. That's maybe philosophically compelling, I'm not sure if it is, but it frankly is not the way humans work, right? That's not the way we work. We don't just think ourselves into something. As a matter of fact, James says, you believe that God is one. Even the demons believe that and shudder, right? So knowing truth about the Trinity, God is three in one, and it's good, but James makes the point, but it's not enough. The demons know it, but they don't practice it. They don't follow him. They don't walk in the light. They walk in the darkness. I'll give you an example of uh, just knowing something and thinking something, not making itself true. Um, I saw a video a couple of years ago um, of a guy named Brian Scalabrini. You've probably never heard of him for good reason. He was an NBA player, but he was like a end of the bench NBA player. Um, he's goofy looking. He's like six foot ten, but he's got red hair. He doesn't look athletic at all. And uh, he caught a lot of flack when he was playing, basically as the example of like the average Joe who sits on their couch and is like, man, I could play in the NBA if that guy can play in the NBA. Like, look at that dude. I mean, he, he looks like the most unathletic guy in the world. He never plays. He makes a million dollars to do absolutely nothing. He's probably not even any good, right? He just got a lucky break. Well, he got tired of hearing this, and so he, he put out what he called the Scalabrini Challenge, which is basically he invited all these dudes from like local YMCAs. He said, yeah, meet me. We'll play one-on-one, and we'll see what happens, right? And you watch over and over and over again these videos. I haven't seen one yet that somebody scores a point on him, right? That's the difference in like an NBA player. I mean, these guys are they're athletic looking. They got you know, bigger muscles than he does. They may be fat, but they're not NBA quality, right? It does not go well for them. They yelled at Scalabrini from the couch while eating Cheetos and wearing a jersey, right? Thinking they were NBA material. Like, man, I could do that. I think I could do that. But they had not put in the work that he had, right? It's different. Being an NBA player and thinking I could play in the NBA are two very different realities, right? One requires habits and work and labor. The other requires me thinking in my head and then stopping there and continuing eating my Cheetos and yelling at the TV, right? One of them is formation. The other one is merely intellect. And this is why the the version of Christianity that says, pray a prayer, punch your ticket to heaven, and then live your life just like everybody else, that's why that's such a pile of garbage, right? Because that's not how Christianity works. That's not how anything works, but it's certainly not how the way of Jesus walking in the light works. It is a way of life. As Jesus transforms us, makes us new, fills us with the Spirit, he begins to form us into something else entirely. He begins to change what we do, how we act, our relationships, all of us. He's continuing to shape and 
form. So we're, we're all in process, right? We want to be clear here. We're all in different spots in our faith journey. We're all walking the way of Jesus imperfectly. Right? Like, so you're like, I don't really do that very well. Like, join the club. Right? That's, that's what we're about. Uh, we have our name Grace Church for a reason. Right? There is grace in Christ to walk the way, stumbling around, trying to follow the light but stubbing your toe. Right? That's what we do. But if following Jesus is a way to be walked, if it's like a light to be followed, why do we so often approach him like a bumper sticker to be stuck on the back of our car and then forgotten about? Added to a long list of interests and hobbies and things that we think are cute and funny, but at the end of the day, not all that transformative to what we do and how we live. So today, I, I want you to come asking God for his light. Asking God to illuminate the places in our lives together that need to be exposed, right? That need to be shined upon, not for the purpose of humiliating ourselves, right? But for the purpose of having them transformed. For the purpose of seeing them formed, not unintentionally, not stumbled into, but intentionally with direction toward Christ and Christ likeness. So to do that, we, we need the Spirit to show us this morning. My second point, which is that we are spiritually formed everywhere, all of the time, right? Spiritual formation is not just the thing of Christianity. Spiritual formation is happening all the time, everywhere you go, whether you know it or not. We are constantly being spiritually shaped and formed by all kinds of factors outside of us and inside of us. Now, next week, we're going to talk about how to refocus these, how to intentionally reorient ourselves to those kinds of habits, those kinds of relationships, right? Those kinds of teachings that help us to reorient ourselves to Christ. Before we get there, I want to spend some time this week just showing and kind of helping, again, cast light on the darkness, right? Showing us what it means to be spiritually formed unintentionally. The kinds of things that are constantly forming us and shaping us that maybe we haven't recognized, or if we have recognized, we haven't moved to reorient, reorient ourselves away from. So we need the Holy Spirit to expose the ways that we're walking unintentionally, how we're unintentionally spiritually formed. So to be clear, not all of these are bad. right? We can, you can stumble into a pillow instead of your bedpost and not stub your toe, right? Unintentional spiritual formation is not always sinful or bad, but it is unintentional. Right? We need to be aware of it so that we can decide, does this need to continue with intention, or does it need to be put away and, and put to death with intention? Right? Because again, we don't back into faithful Christian living. It's a constant putting off and putting on, putting off our sinful selves, putting on more of Jesus every day, every moment of every day. So this morning, let's look together at the three components of, of spiritual formation. Um, I'm borrowing this from a guy named John Mark Comer, who's been very helpful in thinking through my own spiritual formation. Um, and these three components are, number one, our stories, number two, our habits, and number three, our relationships. So our stories, our habits, and our relationships are the three things that form us spiritually. So first, let's look at our, our stories. Um, and when I say stories, I mean we all have a, a primary story that we tell about ourselves. Right? We all have a narrative that kind of governs our life. 
tells us what makes us successful, what makes us a failure, what are our wins and what are our losses in our lives. Again, some of us have thought through this very clearly and carefully. Most of us, probably if we're honest, we kind of just passively have a story about ourselves. So it helps to ask ourselves, what is my primary story, my primary narrative? What shapes what I think of as a successful person or as a failing person, a flourishing person, and a floundering person? The reason this is so important is because we're going to talk about habits, right? We're, the series is titled Faith Habits for a reason. But if you just start adding habits without thinking through how they're affecting your story, what you end up doing is just adding more baggage to the story that you're living. Right? So if you just add Bible reading because it makes you feel guilt, because you feel guilty that you're not, right? that's, that's good, that's fine. Hopefully the Lord spurs more in you. But if you just kind of unintentionally come to Bible reading as this thing that's not going to make me, that's going to make me feel better about myself, and you continue to live on the same trajectory, you're going to keep going the same direction while opening your Bible app once a week, right? We want to come at these habits intentionally understanding how they're shaping and forming us into something else, into, into a, a trajectory and a direction that we want to go. So Trevin Wax gives three examples of the kind of primary stories that we tell, and uh, I'm going to use his, his characters here, um, mostly because He's very smart, but also because if you feel convicted, you can be sure that it's the Holy Spirit and Trevin Wax and, uh, and not me attacking you. So um, I'm going to share these with you. These are three examples. There's a lot more than these. Um, but the first one he talks about is, is Career Cameron. All right, Career Cameron. The primary story that gives shape and direction to Cameron's life is the trajectory of his career. If he were to write a story of his life, he would chronicle his economic progress. His career is the primary story he sees himself in. So he interprets events, opportunities, and challenges with the context of his job performance, referencing his wealth, his status, and the power he hopes to achieve in his career. Cameron would say he's religious. He listens to Christian radio, sometimes on the way to work. He doesn't read the Bible much, but he takes his family to church at least three times a month. He helps out when he has a friend or coworker who is in need, and he provides well for his family. But still, the dominant narrative of Cameron's life is career. When he wakes up in the morning, his mind is already racing. What role will today play in my success story? What wins will I achieve this week? How will I know I've made progress next month? Progress and success, those are the two narratives that shape Cameron's life and his vision and his trajectory. So you see here, Jesus is a piece of Cameron's story, right? He's, he's inserted Jesus into this convenient place that also kind of happens to serve his career goals, right? But Jesus is not the driving force. For the driving force, he looks to his career. Christianity can serve the story of his career, but ultimately he's being formed and shaped by ideas of success and power and wealth and accumulation more than he's being shaped by a vision of Jesus-centered living, gospel-centered life. So at the end of the day, right, Cameron's way, his path, looks a lot like his unbelieving co-workers, but he reads his Bible every now and then. Right? It looks a lot like what the guy sitting next to him in the cubicle thinks of as success and wins, but 
on his radio is Christian radio, right? So at the end of the day, his story is very similar to everyone else's stories. Uh, A second one is political Pamela. Political Pamela. The primary story that gives shape and direction to Pamela's life is the wins and losses of her political party. If she were to write a story of her life, it would tell of her involvement in the saga of whatever is happening politically. The story she sees herself in, a political narrative where politicians and pundits duke it out over the future of the country. All of this unfolds as a mesmerizing drama chronicled daily by social media and cable news. Pam sees herself as a foot soldier in the war in which people on one side want to destroy the nation, while people on her side fight valiantly to protect it. She watches videos of her favorite personalities owning or destroying or shutting down people on the other side of the aisle. She cheers and campaigns. She leaves comments and shares articles. Her setbacks and her steps forward are connected to election results, recent polls, and debate performances. Like Cameron, Pam is religious. She tries to read a chapter from the Bible every day. She goes to church every week. But for the most part, her attention is consumed by politics. And the story of her day is consumed by whatever the news networks choose to call breaking news that day. The dominant narrative of Pam's life can be summed up in her political involvement. She thinks about politics when she wakes up and before she goes to bed. Her church going and Bible reading merely reinforce her sense that she is fighting the good fight and is morally superior to her opponents. So you hear there, again, a story, right? A definition of success and failure, a definition of right and wrong, of light and darkness. And it consumes all the other minor stories, right? So someone like Pamela, her career serves politics, right? For someone like Cameron, his politics will probably serve his, his career in some way, shape, or form, right? In the same way, Pamela's religion, right, her, her faith, her spiritual formation, it really just serves her, her political ends, right? It makes her feel morally superior to her opponent. She quotes her favorite Bible verses to them, right? And so she's using the, the Bible really just as a weapon to, to beat those who she doesn't really care for. And then thirdly, and this is the last one, I promise, um, Greg the Gamer, Greg the Gamer, the primary story that gives shape and direction to Greg's life is his passion for increasing the amount of time he can relax and enjoy himself. He is devoted to leisure and entertainment. If he were to chart the plot points of his life story, he'd tell you about the games he played as a kid, the movies and shows he has watched as an adult, and how he is counting down the days to his next video game system. This is important, question stereotypes, right? Greg is not lazy. He works hard at growing his skills in gaming. He reserves time to watch all the great TV shows coming out. He never misses the latest blockbuster. He works hard at his job, even if it is just a means to an end. It maximizes the time that he's available to do what he really wants. Greg is religious too. He goes to church. He gets on his Bible app every day, scrolls through a passage. He tries to follow the commandments. But the dominant narrative of his life is seen in how he pushes through all of his workplace obligations so that he can dedicate his afternoons, evenings, and weekends to leisure. So setbacks and step forward for Greg are determined by the time and money it takes to pursue entertainment and diversion. So again, a a third narrative, a third story that defines 
his life. So like I said before, right, career, politics, leisure, all of these things are good at best and neutral at worst. Right? So the, the, the darkness here is not that Cameron cares about his career or Pamela is engaged in politics or Greg enjoys leisure and resting through entertainment. Right? The darkness here is that these are the things that are driving the narratives of these folks' lives. And so for us, the question is not, do I care about my career, right? Am I engaged in politics? Do I enjoy Netflix, right? Those aren't the questions, and I'm not trying to hammer you and make you feel guilty this morning asking those questions. The question of self-reflection that we want to shine light or that we want the Holy Spirit to shine light on is, how are these things shaping the rest of my life? What do I think of as success and failure in my life? Is it the things that Jesus sees as success and failure? Or are these things dictated by these other stories? The issue here is that Cameron, Pam, and Greg have replaced the gospel story as the primary narrative of their lives. Rather than serving the gospel story, the the gospel begins to serve these stories instead. So we ask with John this morning, are we saying we have fellowship with him, yet walking in the darkness of other primary stories? Are we unconsciously allowing the modern world and its vision of the good life to shape our lives? And if so, what are we going to do about it? Dallas Willard again is helpful. He says, if we do not make formation in Christ the priority, we're just going to keep on producing Christians that are indistinguishable in their character from many non-Christians. So at Grace Church, we want to produce Christians that are shaped, that are known by their love for others, by their courage, by their hope in a world that often feels hopeless. And we're convinced, the reason we're doing this series, the reason we're handing you these cards is that we're convinced the only way to do this is by the slow process of spiritual formation. There are no quick fixes here, right? There is no magic sermon series or perfect app that is going to radically transform your spiritual life in the next 10 days. That's not how it works, right? I gave, I gave the example of brushing your teeth, right? If you brush your teeth for nine hours straight once a year, your dental health is not going to be as good, your breath is not going to be as pleasant as somebody who brushes their teeth for two minutes every morning. Right? That's not the way that habits work. You can't just do it in a real long stretch run. First of all, your gums will be disintegrated and bleeding. Um, but second of all, it doesn't accomplish what you hope. Right? Two minutes a day is better than nine hours once a year until you remember it again. This is true of anything, whether it's learning a musical instrument, whether it's becoming good at an athletic feat, whether it's learning how to code, whatever it is. Right? You can't just pour yourself into it for a week and then lose interest. It's faithfulness day after day after day. So stories are a large component of our unintentional spiritual formation. A second component is our habits. You hear this in Proverbs chapter four, keep your heart with all vigilance, for from it flow the springs of life. Keep your heart, because from it flow the springs of life. So the reason we're calling this faith habits is because our habits, they are acts of faith, right? The things that we do day to day reveal what we believe. Opening my Bible when I don't feel like it 
shows not that I'm a bad person because I don't feel like it, but that I'm trusting God to do something through it today, even if I don't feel it or know what it is. Coming to the Lord in prayer, even when I don't really hear anything, is me acknowledging by faith that I need God's voice and I need need to share with the Lord what's going on in, in my life. Even something as simple as tithing, right? I don't know what it does, how it works, but I want to be faithful to push against the culture of greed, right? Push against the culture of mine, 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 and say, God's. Right? Even when I'm not sure why or how or what, these are acts of, of faith in our lives, pushing back against those other stories, reflecting it through our habits. So the shape of our lives reveals what we love, right? Whether it's phone swipes, those screen reports, man, those things are... Things hurt. I don't like those. Um, whether it's what's, what's the first thing to do when I wake up? What's the last thing I do before I go to sleep? How do I eat meals? Right? Do I invite my coworker to lunch or do I go eat in my car because I can't do people right now? Right? Sometimes you got to do that. But what's the, what's the dominant narrative? Right? Am I interested in getting to know, loving, showing this person what my life is like? Or... Do I just need to crawl into my, my hole every day, right? Um, Sandra mentioned the life group kickoff in a couple of weeks, right? You gotta eat anyway, right? So we're, you're gonna eat dinner. Well, yeah, but it's just, uh, I'm, too, I'm too busy for that. All right, well, you're gonna spend an hour eating. A life group's asking you to spend about another hour sitting on a couch, you know, sharing life with each other, sharing how you can pray for each other talking about what the Lord's doing in your spiritual life, I would argue if you don't have an extra hour a week to spend with other people, or if you're not doing something like that, it doesn't have to be a life group, but if you're, if you're not gathering with other believers around a couch, if you don't have an hour a week to do that, you're probably too busy to faithfully follow Jesus. Probably a time to reassess your life's priorities and structure, right? And I don't say that again as a guilt trip, just as a reality, So this week, I'm, I'm going to ask, we're going to ask, you'll get an email about this as well, but um, we're going to ask you to do a habits audit. Um, it's real simple. Just take a piece of paper, a journal at the end of the day, and write down what you did that day and how much time went along with it. So for example, I spent 15 minutes this morning drinking coffee, 30 minutes, uh, this isn't me this morning, uh, but 30 minutes on social media, I spent an hour working out, seven hours at work, two hours of Candy Crush, right? And then one hour and $25 on Amazon before I went to bed shopping. Whatever it is, right? Just be honest, right? Don't like, well, mm, spent two hours in Bible reading, right? Look at, look at it honestly, just so you can see where your time's going. This is a helpful practice to do some self-reflection, to cast light on where your time and money and energy is going. And then finally and thirdly, the third component of spiritual formation is our relationships or our community. So you hear there in, in 1 John that we have fellowship with him. He is the light. Verse 7, we have fellowship with one another. All right, so you hear fellowship with God and fellowship with one another go hand in hand. All right, so there's a vertical component to fellowship, fellowship with God, and then there's a horizontal component to fellowship. Fellowship with one another. These are our relationships that form us. In other words, spiritual formation can't be done alone. 
It's meant to be done in community with other people. This is why, as we mentioned, we have life groups, because community doesn't happen in rows. Lots of good stuff happens in these rows. Community is not one of them, primarily. Right? Community happens in circles, on couches, at coffee shops, in Bible studies. Right? But it happens as we gather together and talk to each other, share with each other, are vulnerable with one another. Right? It doesn't happen via simply showing up and receiving. And that's why over the coming months, we're going to be practicing these disciplines together. So you've got a card in your seat. Hopefully it looks something like this. Um, and what these are on the back, right? These, again, this is not like a do all of these things, check the box, and now you're a successful Christian program, right? But what these are designed to do is be gentle nudges, spiritual formation nudges, to get you reoriented to intentionality. And we'll talk more about that next week, but I want to give you this card this week so that you can start, you'll see January 10th, which is tomorrow, begins the first nudge, which is commit to a Bible reading plan. Commit to a Bible reading plan. You can see the link up here if you're uh, fancy and want to get out your phone. I'll allow it for just a moment. I'm just kidding. Um, but uh, you can take a picture of the QR code there, and I will take you to that link, which is uh, if you click that link and then click, read. Uh, I think it says something like, choose a Bible reading plan or something that is at the very top. That'll give you a list of potential Bible reading plans to, uh, to commit to over the next couple of weeks. Um, encouraging you to commit to them for this year, if you can. Um, they span everywhere from, uh, one of my favorites for new believers or people who just aren't used to reading the Bible is called the five by five by five, which is five minutes a day, um, five days a week, can't remember what the other five's for, but there's another five there somewhere. Anyway, five minutes a day, five days a week, and then uh, you end up reading the New Testament in a year. Uh, so it's basically one chapter a day, and you'll finish the New Testament by December. Um, another one that's helpful is uh, the second or third one on that list is called a Bible reading chart. So what that is, it's just got every uh, chapter in the Bible with a little checkbox next to it. And so as you read, you can just check it off. And the reason that one's helpful for me is so that when I get to the end of the year and I'm like, well, I failed at my... Bible reading goal this year. I guess I'm a bad Christian and should probably give up. The great thing is my one-year plan now just turned into a two-year plan, right? So I've got a certain amount of books checked off, and I'm just going to keep on plugging and chugging until I can get through um, the plan. Because the point, right, isn't to get through it in a certain amount of time. The point is nudging myself to engage with God's Word that day and that week. All right, so uh, commit to a Bible reading plan this week, and like I said, next week we'll chart kind of the uh, looking forward into what these next few ones will look like. Um, all right, so relationships are also crucial to our spiritual formation. Um, we all have relationships that we stumble into, right? Whether it's family or culture or city, um, you all experience it, or not all. If you're a parent, you've experienced this before where you say something and you're like, I literally just channeled my mother or father. Um, I said the other day to my son, we're not paying to heat the backyard. I was like, oh, man, where did that come from? And I knew exactly where it came from. Um, so we're all shaped in various ways by our family, whether we like it or not, right? We're shaped in various ways by our location, our culture. Um, if you don't believe me, watch what happens to your neighbor's face when I say, In-N-Out Burger is better than Whataburger. Oh, so, okay, so I saw everybody just like cringed, and I saw some people like pull out their uh, gun, but... Um, <laughs> 
right? So we're shaped by that, right? We collectively have a, a belief about that because of our location. It just is what it is. Whether you're right or wrong is out of the purview of this sermon. I'm not going to, uh, to lose you there. But um, so we have relationships of family, right? Culture, place, city. Um, in the modern world, we have relationships via our phone, right? We're shaped by the connections that we have via technology, whether it's influencers, content creators, Facebook groups, right? We are affected by all of these, probably more than we know. So for some of you, your family affecting your spiritual formation is a great thing. You're like, I have a godly dad, a godly mom, and I want to be like them uh, spiritually when I grow up. That's a phenomenal uh, gift of grace. Uh, And that's a good thing for some of you. That's a terrifying thing that you're shaped by your family. You look back and um, whether it's trauma or just bad experiences in general, you're not excited about the possibility of your family affecting your spiritual formation. Um, And for some of you, it's kind of a mixed bag, right? Where there's some good, some bad, some you'd like to take, some you'd rather leave behind. Um, For some of you, uh, in order to see spiritual fruit, you're going to need to be more humble and adept at identifying what parts of you are at the core of your faith and what parts of you are coincidentally Texan, right? Or American or related to family uh, preferences. Uh, Maybe it's because I live in the 21st century. I think this way. Again, those are fine to have. Those aren't sinful. Those aren't bad. But we need to shine light on them to understand where they fit in our story and in our relationships. It doesn't mean we can't have them, but it means we must be a lot more humble about them. And then for some of you, being more intentional with spiritual formation means We've got to do some self-reflection on what influencers, algorithms, content creators, media personalities we allow in our minds and in our hearts on a regular basis. To be more aware of how we're being shaped and discipled and formed by the inputs that we're receiving. So you say, okay, great. My family affects me. My habits show that I love Netflix more than Jesus. And God is holy and perfect light. Thank you for that wonderful, uplifting sermon in the new year, Pastor. There's a few things that are good news here. Number one, unless you're dead or unless you're Jesus, we are all in the process of sanctification. We are all in process. And we're all in this together. God, in his grace, continues and will continue the process of shining light on the various pockets of your life that aren't yet possessed and permeated by Christ. And as he does that, he will form and shape you anew. That is what he's in the business of doing. This is the glory of sanctification. The things that you thought were going to be impossible when you first became a believer, whether it's the addiction or the anger problem, If you look back, you realize you began to see some progress there, right? And maybe you even saw that, for the most part, conquered in many ways. And yet, what happens if you continue on in faith? Well, you started out with this major issue, right? This addiction or anger problem. And then you start to see progress there, and all of a sudden, you're like, okay, if you're like my kids, right? You you clean up all the toys in your room, and that just exposes the two-week-old banana peel, and that's why the room stinks, right? Or the, the stain on the carpet that we're not really sure where that came from, right? So, but in order to see those, you had to clean up like all of the massive pile of toys that were on the floor. That's what happens with us. As those huge anchors of sin start being lifted, we start to see the actual heart issues that were behind them in the first place. 
And those are a lot harder in many ways, or a lot longer at least, to get rid of. So that's some good news, but the even better news, and this is where we're landing, the even better news that we're all in this together is that Jesus died for our spiritual formation. This is why, not the only reason, it's a large reason, that Jesus went to the cross. He died for your spiritual formation. You can hear it in John, 1 John. If we say we have no sin, we are deceiving ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If you go back one verse, the blood of Jesus and his son cleanses us from all sin. So if you come this morning and say, look, I don't want to, my habits are fine, my relationships are fine, my, I don't really do the, the stories. If we say we have no sin, we're deceiving ourselves. And yet, if we come to Jesus knowing that we can have the confidence, his blood will cover whatever gets exposed by the light. Shine, shine away. Pick up the toy so that I can get rid of the banana peel. Shine all around my life so that I can see these things uprooted, so that I can become more like Christ. Because that's where life is. That's where joy is. Christ can redeem our biological family. And even better news, he's given us a spiritual family that we're sitting with right now. That's also imperfect. That is a glorious picture of what we're all journeying toward. So whether you're not yet a Christian or this is just another mile marker in a long journey, we must be reminded that Christ-likeness is not natural, but it is possible because his blood cleanses us. Something from outside of ourselves works on the inside of ourselves to change and transform us. Jesus doesn't want you to get cleaned up. He polishes you along the way. I just love that picture of Jesus as our advocate where he's sitting up in heaven and we mess up again, right? And he's like, well, I paid for that one already. Right? And then we stumble again and he says, man, you remember two years ago? She's made so much progress since then. You remember where she was two years ago and now she's struggling with this and I mean, I'm going to keep polishing, right? We're going to keep forming, but oh man, it's exciting to see the progress that She's made. Jesus is our advocate. His blood has cleansed us. He's not keeping a record of your Bible reading plan this year, right? He's just wanting to commune with you. Jesus isn't after your guilt. He's after your heart. That's what spiritual formation is really about, aligning your heart with Jesus's. So I'm going to close with uh, this quote from a philosopher named James Smith. And, uh, and then we'll sing. Commenting on John chapter 1, verse 38, Jesus looked around and he saw them following and he asked them the question, what do you want? Smith writes, what do you want? That's the question. It's the first, last, and most fundamental question of Christian discipleship. Our wants and longings and desires are at the core of our identity the wellspring from which our actions and behavior flow. Our wants reverberate from our heart, the epicenter of the human person. Above all else, guard your heart, for everything you do flows from it. Discipleship is a way to curate your heart, to be attentive to the intentional, to be attentive and intentional about what you love. So discipleship is more about hungering and thirsting 
than of knowing and believing. Jesus' command to follow him is a command to align our loves and longings with him, to want what God wants, to desire what God desires, to hunger and thirst after God, and crave a world where he is all in all. The kingdom of God. Jesus is a teacher who doesn't just form our intellect, but forms our very loves. He isn't content to simply deposit new ideas inside your mind. He is after nothing less than your wants, your loves, your longings. His teaching doesn't just touch the cool, calm, collected space of reflection and contemplation. He is a teacher who invades the heated, passionate regions of your heart. Let's pray. Lord God, we ask that you would invade our passions. We ask for your help by the power of your spirit to see the areas that, uh, Father, we have unintentionally allowed to be formed. Lord, we recognize that there is a kingdom of darkness uh, that is seeking to shape and form us, and we must step into the light, eager and humble to hear from you. So I pray that this week, as we read your word, uh, as we commit to um, a new plan at the new year, that you would begin to search our hearts and uncover the rocks that we didn't even know were there. And I ask that next week, Father, you will continue to help us learn uh, and practice what it means to orient ourselves toward Christ, walking in his way, illuminated by the light of his word. We love you, Lord Jesus. We want to know you and experience you and follow you. It's in your name that we pray. Amen.